Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 3 is the 90s. This is episode 71, Goodwill Hunting, brackets, Taylor's version. Spoilers, it will not be 10 minutes. Uh, I'm, my name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by the mathematical savant that is Ben Phillips. Ben, are you solving proofs when you should be mopping floors? Uh, no, I just do Excel spreadsheets. Of course, of course. <laughs> the spreadsheet boys, that's us. Our, our much lamer version of Goodwill Hunting is we do spreadsheets together. And I'm like, my God, how has he done this? <laughs> He's doing some of the most exciting spreadsheet work ever conceived. Uh, yeah, so this is Goodwill Hunting. It was chosen by me. And the reason for that would be, on days where I'm too embarrassed to say that my favourite movie ever is Adventureland, I say it's Goodwill Hunting. It was very much Baby's First, This Is My Favourite Film kind of thing. You know, if we ignore our sort of childhood period where our favourite film involves, you know, spandex and explosions and, and goofy shit, although many of my favourite films still involve that. But, you know, when you're like, I'm into films now, this was my first love this was my first big like my god this is a perfect movie this is everything i want from the world you know obviously i've calmed down a little bit as i've gotten older and older but it will forever hold a very special place in my heart because of that to you i'm sure it's just oh hey it's that decent movie that came out in the 90s yeah i mean it's 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 probably looking at the list of movies the most oscary movie Yes. That we're covering like even down to like a few good men probably being in contention for that but a few good men still got the, the caveat of it being a very stagey kind of like playwrighty movie yeah. where this feels like manufactured from the ground up like a lot of the stuff around the ages doesn't matter so much as the fact that you've got this these kind of like central performances that just fucking work like the movie isn't asking you to to think or like it's not asking Gus Van Sant to do anything flashy, even though there is obviously the the story that they tried to get Kevin Smith to direct it, and he was like, "No, you need to have a like an actual director to do this." <laughs> but like again, like it's not like I'm coming away from this movie going like, "Wow, Gus Van Sant is like doing some incredible stuff with the way that he's staging all this stuff." It's just no, they found the right actors. They've all got great chemistry together. You put yeah. them in a the room, stuff goes off. I do think. The movie suffers somewhat from the fact that, like, the actual firecracker performance takes a good long while until it shows up. Yeah, yeah. Um, a I lot think, being put on a young Matt Damon before Robert, Robin Williams shows up and wins his Oscar. So again, I'm not saying this is a bad movie in any way, shape, or form. It's just definitely one of those things where it's like it's it's a it's a performance-driven movie, and those aren't always my like favorite things that are coming out in an awards year. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so, yeah, as you said, directed by Gus Van Sant, who, you know, this is his calling card. He has a, he does have other movies, obviously, but he doesn't, like, become the next big thing of a director, as, it, as this might have implied he might be in line to do. Like, he... The ver his version of Psycho, is that the one that's basically shot for shot? Just yeah, it's complete. Like, it, the wildest thing, so obviously, yeah, I was going to say, like, his follow-up movie to Good Will Hunting is... A shot-for-shot shot recreation of Psycho, which is basically him doing like a film school experiment, basically going like, "If I just did this again, what's the difference?" Obviously, like Gus Van Sant's got some great movies in his career. Like, obviously, Elephant is like a, a fucking tough watch mm. at this point in time. Milk is in the very similar Oscar vein to, to Good Will Hunting, and the fact that it's like 
fantastic central performance from Sean Penn. Yeah. Just not my cup of tea in terms of like the what it's going for. But like he's certainly a interesting director. Yeah. Even if he's not one of my like, oh yeah, Gus Van Sant, I need to go watch whatever his next movie ends up being. You're the um, man now, dog. Yeah. Um because yes. like, <laughs> my my the director who like showed me what like big boy movies could be is Darren Aronofsky who we've discussed yeah. at length for multiple episodes of this podcast and it's like I'm still fully in the stump for, for him I will go see any of his new movies even if all of them come with some level of like mm. controversy or like exhaustion like the, the conversation around Mother when that came out is obviously a huge yeah. a huge part of what that consensus was at the time and people being kind of like very put upon but like it feels like you're not like for someone who directed your like "Quote unquote favorite movie at the time. You're not like Gus Van Sant is someone I need to like. Oh God, no! Devour all and this stuff. Now we're talking it through. This is quite a, a realization to have 71 episodes into this podcast. I guess I'm not really a director guy. You know, like I, I sort of reject most of the big. You know, I fucking hate Quentin Tarantino, who is the sort of generic go-to. I love Quentin. I, I'm largely indifferent, but mildly positive towards like Spielberg. There are people whose work I enjoy more than others, but there's no one who I'd be like, this person is my favourite director. And it's not really the stuff that bothers me. Like, a badly directed movie doesn't bother me as much as a badly written movie. So I think that's what we're discovering here through this movie. Because, yeah, he's... I'm not saying he's on autopilot in this movie, but you hand most directors this script and this cast, they're probably going to churn out something that is as good or better than this. And and all of my focus is entirely on that cast who allegedly wrote the movie. Um, <laughs> because, yes, famously, officially written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, heavy help from Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier, who... I think, as you alluded to, I can't remember if it was before or after we started recording, but um, I think Kevin Smith basically declined the opportunity to direct it and was like, no, you should go get a director, <laughs> which, you know, good self-awareness from Kevin Smith. Um, yeah, I mean, you say like any director could do this. I mm. think the Kevin Smith version of this movie is not unwatchable. Like, I, <laughs> I don't think Kevin Smith has gotten, like, a great performance out of any of his actors how dare you? You've seen Ben Affleck in Jersey Girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, be, like, the only one I would have gone, like, is that a good performance? Or is it just because you've kind of, like, gone and stumped up for a, a great actor and it's um, Rickman in Dogma? Yeah. Is the only one that I'm like, is that a great performance? I'm like, it's, it's not really. It's just, it's Alan Rickman on autopilot coming in to help this, like, mm. religious stoner comedy. Yeah. And that's the thing. Once upon a time, Kevin Smith might have been my answer for favourite director. And he is, from a technical standpoint, not in any way skilled. He is, he is a writer who just takes the director chair for himself. And that probably speaks volumes about my feelings on direction. <laughs> I, I massively reevaluated my my standing for Kevin Smith, as we all did, I think, in the last decade. But, you know, once upon a time, that probably would have been my go-to answer. But it's because, like... I enjoy Kevin Smith movies, but I enjoy Kevin Smith, the writer, not the director. And I've also turned yeah, exactly. on some of his writing because it's like, yeah, oh wait, is... this is quite a gross assessment of of, <laughs> of lesbians and, and everything. He um, is obviously a very gifted writer who is very charismatic. And yes. I do I do genuinely think that even he would look back on some of the stuff that he was doing in the 90s and go like, you know, I could have done that better. I would hope but so. <laughs> 
I mean, it, it, but it's just his lack of skill in directing is the stuff that's held him back, and the stuff like yeah. every like every five years now is like we're going back to the viewer yeah. skewverse, and it's like <laughs> okay. I, I kind of like stopped paying attention to that after Clerks 2. Like, I mean, uh, truly, his value is in doing three hour QA sessions that get uploaded to YouTube because <laughs> he has some stories. His, his, I don't know if you've seen his anecdotes about Prince hired him to make a documentary at some point. And oh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen both the Prince and the Superman <laughs> lives. Yeah, okay. yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so as a, as a, Figure in pop culture, I think he has value. I just don't think he's a very good filmmaker. But officially, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote this, even if it had heavy help from him. There has been many a joke that Ben Affleck basically hung out and said, can you put both our names on it? Because whether it's true or not, public perception is Matt Damon is sort of smart for a famous person and Ben Affleck is a big old dum-dum. I would imagine in reality they are of similar intelligence. (laughs) But, you know... Their careers played out how they did. I feel Ben Affleck's standing has risen and Matt Damon's has lowered after it was the complete opposite for many a year. Where did Ben Ben Affleck go to university? Because obviously Matt Damon does this as his final script for a screenwriting class at Harvard University. Yes. Harvard. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look like Ben Affleck goes to goes to any university, he just ends up kind of like bumming around and being a being an actor sooner, which is kind of why going into this, Ben Affleck's the bigger name. And then I guess like at the end of the day, like Matt Damon was getting like bigger roles before this, but like Ben Affleck was actually being the lead in movies, even yeah. if the movies that he's being the lead in are like Mole Rats and and Chasing Amy and stuff like that, whereas <laughs> Matt Damon's working with like legitimate directors in things like Glory Days and Courage Under Fire and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you know, Matt Damon obviously is the lead of this and gets the gets more scenes. Gets bit you know, they give Ben Ben Affleck his big monologue at the end where he drops his normal character and puts on his big boy boots for a couple of minutes. Um, but for the most part, this is a Matt Damon vehicle, and uh, for I don't know a decade after this, he's like. A-list, big roles left and right, like, in good stuff, and then it starts to unwind a bit as he seems to chase more box office acclaim. Um, Weird one, because obviously he he follows this up almost immediately with Saving Private Ryan, which is the start of that trend of, like, secret Matt Damon movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, obviously, I, don't, I feel like he doesn't kick it off until he's got that kind of, like, one-two punch of Born Identity and Ocean's Eleven is, mm-hmm. like, what kind of, like, sets him up as, like, movie star Matt Damon. Yeah. He is someone who is, like, a reliable box office draw. And that carries him on for that good decade. And then, and now it's, like, now he's, like, he's a sort of producer. He's doing, like, all these weird movies. Like, obviously, we've talked to Matt Damon to death mm-hmm. on, on Secret Agent Men. Yeah. But, like, yeah, like, he's had, like, a weird kind of, like, last ten years where, like, he does movies seemingly out of obligation or he does weird things like The Great Wall where it's, like, this is just a tax write-off for China trying to make money in China. Mm. And then everything else is like, he will show up in Thor Ragnarok or Dead <laughs> 2 or Ocean's 8 and like isn't really so much interested in being the lead and stuff. But then when he does show up, he's like really good in Ford v Ferrari. And I've heard good things about him in the last year as well, which is like his other mm. script writing credit that he's got. Like his first time he actually sat down behind a desk and wrote a movie. Um, yeah. yeah, it does seem like... I'll do Bourne for a paycheck, but 
I'm fucking off again for a few years until something vaguely interests me. And he gives a lot of quotes that seem to harm his public image a little bit. I know there was the controversy with his production. Didn't he have like a, it was like a TV show about his production company and they were there like was searching a, he, for writers or... He's got a, a documentary series that he does with Ben Affleck on Project Greenlight where basically right. they fund an independent movie where they basically like have an audition process for someone to be, to write and direct or like to direct a movie and then like the last season of that there were all kinds of controversies around behind the scenes including like were they being sexist and racist and stuff like mm. that of like who they were picking for who to make the movie and i mean like, it's a it's a fascinating look behind the scenes and it's crazy to see like the stuff that ends up on camera and they're like <laughs> yeah i'm with this ending for cameras my public image it's it's not a great I, I mean, I only watched the most recent season of Project Greenlight, which is obviously the one where, like, most of the controversy was. It's wild to watch this entire, like, well-put-together documentary, and then what ultimately comes out is, like, a steaming pile of shit from, <laughs> from this director. Yeah, yeah. Them co-writing it was, like, a huge part of the narrative around the movie. It's, like, a... I don't know if it did help... The, with the Oscar campaign or not, which we'll get to in a minute, but I just I feel like it's something that everyone's like, oh, and they wrote it themselves. Well done, them. I think it's um, what it's what's really fascinating is like you see the development of this movie, and it feels like this script is what gets them into rooms, but yeah. nearly every single time they get it into rooms, someone comes along and rips the script up and asks them to like change some element of it, where it's like. Yeah. It starts off as the thing that he does for a class at university. He ends up getting Ben Affleck in the room and they end up writing a completely different movie that's more in the vein of what you'd expect from two boys from Boston, where it's like, <laughs> we're going to write about like a kid with super intelligence. Like, basically, we're going to write Bourne. Like, the original pitch of this movie is Bourne. It's a super intelligent man with a government agency coming to like force him into being like a spy or... Yeah, and you can you can see the, the bare bones of that left in as he's talking shit to the NSA and stuff like that. And then like and then it just kind of this script gets passed between probably like three of the biggest people involved in movies in the nineties, where it goes from Rob Brindler's Castle Rock, who like manages to get Terrence Malick to come rewrite some stuff or like look over the script against Will William Goldman to come look over the script. As you said, like Kevin Smith has looked over the script at this point until eventually, like, no one. The reason why it gets bumped around so much is no one wants to make the movie starring these two people. Right. Like, like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, like, we do not want to put pin our pin this movie onto you. We think you've got a good script here, but we're not going to give you the money to make this movie starring you two, even if you do get a Robin Williams type to functionally play your lead. We'd be more excited if it was. <laughs> I mean, it, like. Who, who's come up in every episode that we've done so far about casting a young male? It's it's Leo DiCaprio has come up. Yeah, Johnny Johnny Depp, Mark Wahlberg, all those lovely people. Joaquin Phoenix is always circled for stuff, and I'm like, didn't he not get properly famous until the 2000s? And yet he's always listed as a potential candidate for stuff in the 90s. Then and then ultimately, like the, the only people who will fund this movie starring these two is everyone's favorite rapist. Harvey Weinstein. Yes, it is a Miramax calling card, probably one of their most uh, proud movies. I mean, it, it, again, it's that, like, every single time we've discussed the Oscars, it always comes back to, like, what is the, the Weinstein movie that's in contention? But, like, it, it's weird to see the production of this movie and it basically be 
at the end of all of this, at the end of Rob Reiner, Terence Malick, Kevin Smith, like William Goldman, all looking over the script, we still get to the end point of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are the Oscar credited screenwriters. Like, there's no story credit, and then someone, some old hands coming in to do it. it it's it's wild to think that this movie is basically hot potatoed around all the hottest 90s directors and producers and writers and they're like oh these two fuckwits from boston still <laughs> i i can only assume it like the studio felt it was a feel-good like narrative to say oh yeah they wrote it themselves these kids are smart and going places and therefore you should treat them like movie stars kind of thing or you know matt damon lawyered up super early and was like no this is my fucking script from college you fucks like this is mine forever <laughs> Um, who knows? What we do know is that it was released, finally, uh, in December of 1997. On a budget of 10 million, it makes 226 million dollars, so quite the massive hit, which is likely, I mean, 10 million dollars is very cheap to make a movie. You are probably barely paying most of the cast who aren't Robin Williams. And I think Robin Williams is famously quite generous with, or willing to negotiate his salaries, um, stuff like that. But how did it do on its opening weekend? And then also we should probably talk Oscars. So, so this movie, it, it, as is the trend with these kind of movies, it opens on seven screens uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving at number 13, earning a piddling $273,000. In the top five, you've got Flubber, Alien Resurrection, The Rainmaker, Anastasia and the Jackal. This movie is is definitely doing an awards run. They know what they've got in their hands, but they're not going to release it wide until January of next year, where it bumps all the way up to number two at the box office, going up from number 14. Only move it to beat at that week is Titanic, which is obviously the movie that ends up beating it at the Oscars for Best Picture. But like, it's it's very obvious and very shrewd on the part of, I presume this is a Weinstein move, where it's like, we're going to do the awards qualification run and then once we've got like a bunch of nominations or buzz we'll open it wide yeah. and we'll pin it to like it, this is the wildest thing about it is obviously as we've said like matt damon is is not really a name at this point robin williams is top build despite the fact he's a show for half an hour like this is almost entirely probably being sold on the charisma of robin williams at this point yeah, and like, when is his? When does he attempt to get into drama? De- this is, this Dead Poet Society, and then this. Yeah, I mean that's thing is because he's always got a couple in his career where like Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, where it's like he, he continually is trying to do it, but the stuff that he is hitting with is all of the kind of like the big bold comedies. It's it's things like Hook, it's things like Mrs. Doubtfire, it's things like Jumanji, mm. and like where he is making the money. Yeah. And like all of his roles really before 2000, even when he is going for dramatic stuff, they always tend to be using the the Robin Williams charisma. Yeah, and even in this, he's finding pockets to like do a voice or you know be funny. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Is like obviously one of the most famous things about this entire movie is the is the scene where he like basically makes up a story about his wife farting in bed. Yeah. And yeah. Obviously, everyone knows that the fact that like the reactions from Matt Damon are completely real. He went off script and was just like telling these stories to Matt Damon, and he was like crying with laughter about yeah. how funny yeah. he was um, as a person. Yeah, or like you know the, the the baseball story where you know they're both up on their feet and he's doing a mild impression of the announcer. You know, just he's finding ways to inject some energy into a character that's supposed to be tragically like 
stuck in place from you know the depression the grief of losing his wife and everything and you know does make jokes but it's supposed to it seems on paper supposed to be a little bit more of a sedate character and he finds places where he can make him a bit more lively but i mean he's he's undeniably fantastic though and and he he does get that oscar one of the many oscars it's nominated for only wins two of course best screenplay and and Best Supporting Actor. Um, so why don't we talk about the 70th Academy Awards? Yes, so at the 70th Academy Awards, as we've already mentioned, Titanic is obviously the winner for the year. <laughs> Just a huge fucking monster of a movie, the highest grossing movie of all time, and at that point, the second movie ever to win 11 Oscars. I also believe it's the most nominated movie ever up to that point as well, along with All About Eve and La La Land. Like, just an insane juggernaut of a movie that always... like. It's one of those things where, like, in my head, you're always going to struggle with a kind of acting showcase movie to kind of win all of those awards. Because quite often, like, if you don't have the technical not, uh, categories behind you, you're not going to do, like, as well as the Titanic or Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Yeah. It's still wild to think that, like, Titanic wins. Of its 11 wins, none of them are for acting. Like, it, it's all technical stuff. And it yeah. basically wins every category that isn't the acting categories. But yeah, also up for Best Picture, you've got as good as it gets, The Full Monty, Good Will Hunting, and L.A. Confidential. Pretty oscar year. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, all of those movies are like, I don't think, apart from Titanic, I don't think any of them are like, yes, this is like one of my favourite movies of 1997. Like, I'm holding this as like, in my top five, a movie I hold near and dear to my heart. Obviously, you've you've got your opinion on Good Will Hunting as like, <laughs> your, your favourite big boy movie, but from, for me, it's like, I don't think I'm, like, energised by that list of movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this movie, as we said, like, it, it gets a shit ton of noms, even if it only wins two. Let's just run through this. So it's up for Best Picture, Best Directing for Gus Van Sant, Best <laughs> Lead Actor for Matt Damon. It is up for Best Supporting Actor, which he wins for Ron Williams, Mini Driver, Best Supporting Actress, uh, Best Screenplay Written Director for the Screen for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, original dramatic score for Danny Elfman, the original song by Elliot Smith, which is, I mean, I, we, do we want to do an Elliot Smith corner? <laughs> Are you a big Elliot Smith fan? Not really, but if you want to. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, I like Elliot Smith, he's a nice guy. Um, best film editing as well for Pietro Scalia. So yeah, like a shit ton of nominations. Mm. Obviously, I think in any other year apart from this one, it probably wins a couple more. It's just because it's up against yeah. Titanic. But it is also probably a little bit... Like, Gus Van Sant has no business being nominated for direction in this movie. Like, the acting and, and the writing and the music, yeah. like and, and a part of the movie that I probably wouldn't instinctively go to talk about. The music is very good, but it's, you know, it, it's it's not... Uh, nothing is happening that, that merits an Oscar nomination for Gus Van Sant other than... They just sort of go, yeah, this is a big popular movie. Have a have a nomination. <laughs> I think it's interesting though because this is kind of that era when they normally like the best directing and best picture category are kind of like in lockstep. Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. get best picture, then you're going to get a best directing nomination. Yeah. So like the only person that misses out is James L. Brooks for as good as it gets, but like otherwise, every other mm. best picture nominee's director is is in that category. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's being caught up in the in the the gravity of the general praise of the movie, but like that is the one where you look at it and it's like, hmm, don't know about that one, buddy. But yeah, I mean, it is an acting showcase. I think very well written. Uh, the music is great, but yeah, 
Titanic happens to the best of us, I suppose. <laughs> like, every so often a movie comes out where you're just kind of like, yeah, no, we kind of had to get steamrolled that year for, for whatever reason. Um, even me as awards communist who's like, <laughs> more awards for more films rather than awarding the same three film at every single award ceremony. Yeah, we should talk about this movie. And I could talk all goddamn day about Will and Sean talking to each other. I will try not to. Uh, I actually would like to open up with uh, Stellan Skarsgård as Gerald Lambeau, which is a wild part, like just a a colossal dickhead, Um, like a rock star mathematician who at any given opportunity is just the worst, whether it's hitting on students at a party or hitting on a lady in a therapist's sort of waiting room you know, walking into the sort of maintenance office and being like, he doesn't know what number his building is because it's his building. And, and you know, this is this is Professor Lambeau, his TA says, and everything like that. Just, it's it's a heroically dickish performance, you know, in a, in a movie that doesn't really have villains. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's that one dickhead in the bar, but, and, and the people who are never seen on screen, but... He is the closest thing to an antagonist, which is weird because he sort of plucks Will out of jail and tries to set him on a nice path, but he just has that like elitism to him um, that Stellan is, you know, sort of generously making himself the twat so everyone else gets to look better by comparison. He he is a remarkably kind of compassionate actor in the terms of the fact that like he can do both raging dickhead and also mm. kind of like altruistic i'm just trying to help and he, got, and he gets to play both in this movie which i think is like kind of the most interesting part about his character is that like there is genuine affection for for will in the scenes where like they are doing the maths and working together and stuff like that it's just mm. it's, it's kind of like i want to be known as the person who found the next exactly Einstein. exactly that's the whole thing is it is not true altruism the whole thing is dipped in if I can't be as brilliant as him, they will still say I'm the guy that found him and I did all this for him and he will be so grateful to me that I got him this interview and this opportunity. And like, yeah, it is, it is actually kind of cute seeing them smile together while they're solving maths problems. But it's as, as Will is starting to grow emotionally and stuff and open up a little bit, he just finds him so boring <laughs> and, and and that big scene where he's like look i'm sorry i find do you have any idea how fucking easy this is for me and he burns his paper and lambo is like on his knees trying to put it out because every precious ounce of maths must be savored <laughs> and then yeah just like just no interest in him and and he has a very like if you're not trying as hard as you possibly can to be the greatest academic in the world then you're a waste of time kind of thing and he looks down on sean because sean went into therapy when he was smarter than him in college and all of this stuff and and he just he he is dripping in that kind of i'm the guy that helped you therefore all of your praise is also my praise kind of thing the weirdest part for me whilst watching this movie is i watched dune not long afterwards where stella skarsgård is playing like this awful kind of like creepy villainous character who's like like very much kind of like in prosthetics and looks like very sickly and all disgusting and it's like he is and as i said like he is an incredibly kind of like compassionate actor who will do 
the weirdest shit and will show up in like the weirdest movies where it's like he's got like four Marvel movies under his belt. <laughs> like, who thought that Stellan Skarsgård was going to become a linchpin of early Marvel movies? <laughs> yeah. um, and here he is in this movie, kind of going like, "I'm going to play this unapologetic dickhead yeah. who, but we're going to give him just enough heart to him to kind of like make him." vaguely sympathetic even at the same time yeah. like yeah sean plays up what a big deal the medal he won was and you, you can tell he's still just so incredibly deeply insecure and he needs to be constantly validated otherwise you know like he basically said he he wishes he'd never met will like he can't sleep at night because there's someone out there who is effortlessly better than him and everything he's achieved is by like torturing himself into being brilliant and everything. And I mean, it, it's it's one of the better scenes for me in the movie is that scene where it's Robin Williams and Stone Skarsgård at the bar, and mm. they're like playing the game of like, do you know these names? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, at the end of the day, like the one name that that Gerald Campo doesn't know is the name of the Unabomber, yeah. because like he's thinking like, oh, a famous scientist, famous like intelligent people and it's like well no because the thing that gets you in for me is if you if you kill a lot of people and again it's Robert Williams winning the argument by going like if we don't do this for Will he is someone who's massively intelligent and maybe not in touch with their emotions enough that he's going to do some kind of like horrific violent outburst at some point yeah but it's also about like you know like Lambeau's point is all that like you must push people completely to their absolute limits academically and if you by getting drunk with his friends he's wasting his time and Robin Williams is like well the Unabomber was pushed really hard and was was really brilliant academically and he fucking snapped and killed a bunch of people so it's like you have to let people have their own path I think is his main argument there and like you know that he that he resents having to defend his career choices and then the and the medal and then you know oh if you want the medal you can have it and stuff like that and it is a weird character in that like he is the one that sort of sets everything into motion and connects will with with Sean by like taking him to various therapists who he just dicks around with and everything but like you do by the end of it Lambeau and Sean have, have, have sort of made up a bit and they're going to go for a drink together and it's all very nice but yeah, just in a movie where like most of the conflict is between nice people, he is the closest thing to an actual villain, and like even little things like he just completely interrupts Sean's, like he just barges into Sean's psychology lecture because it's like, well, this is just a community college and this is psychology or, or psychiatry. I'm a brilliant mathematician from MIT. I go where I want, and it's like, can you imagine if you just walked into someone's lecture? Like, just fuck off, dude. Um, I think it's it, it's a wonderful contrast between their teaching styles. <laughs> yeah. In that, like, you watch the lectures that Stellan Skarsgård is giving, yeah. and they're not dry, but it's a kind of it's a very kind of forced humor where it feels like he's expecting these people to kind of like lap up because he is Gerald Lambeau. Mm -hmm. And then you go to what Robin Williams is doing. And sex he, jokes. <laughs> he's just being effortlessly charismatic and yeah. basically just kind of going, like, I'm going to teach you by making you remember this because the things I'm saying are going to stick in your mind, as opposed yeah. to like, look at me because of how, of how smart I am. Instead, it's I'm going to make you remember this because this is important, and the best way to to learn things is by being humorous and and making you have a good time whilst learning it. Yeah, basically, all of the events of the movie are set into motion. Is Lambo puts up this 
impossible maths problem on a blackboard, and whoever solves it gets to go in the MIT prestigious journal thing, and someone has solved it, and it's Will Hunting, the janitor, the, the, the fucking burnout from South Boston, and even in that, after it's solved, they're like, well, the faculty have come up with one that took us two years to solve, so we're just gonna, like, put our foot down and be like, no, 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 we are truly smart, no one will solve this one. And then, of course, he meets Will Hunting, who, as we meet him, just kind of likes hanging around with his burnout friends. Um, they they are all very poor, they all work manual labour, they all drink a lot, and they are played by Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, uh, the other guy. Cole Hauser. Cole Hauser. And Cole Hauser, yes. So they are this little quartet. They drink, they fight, you know, they just fuck around. This is a central conceit of the movie and, like, an area that they... That Lambeau and Sean argue over is that like Lambeau looks down on the fact that he hangs out with I'm not going to say the R slur, but dumb gorillas as he calls them, <laughs> who are like not my words, but you know, beneath him and they just fuck around and they get into fights and they go looking for fights. Like they're they're just hanging out at a fucking children's baseball game, which hmm. <laughs> and they spot someone that used to bully Will when he was young. And it clearly is just on his mind the whole day because they see him, like, an hour later and he just starts a massive fight with him. And, like, I think this is kind of evidence that Gus Van Sant doesn't deserve any awards because, like, I kind of get what he's going for in the filming of the violence to seem so, like, wacky and other world, You know, like, the extreme close-ups on Casey Affleck as he's punching a guy in the face and he's just doing this dumb expression as he's doing it all very strange choices that <laughs> just feel like you were going for something and you shot too far kind of thing that's all very weird but you know obviously will has a great deal of anger issues and then takes it too far and is put in prison where he of course defends himself but yeah i mean the the, the reason i bring them up is like i guess every 10 to 15 minutes we cut to this group just hanging around and just basically being themselves like the the Afflecks just just talking shit to each other throughout the movie and they're all fine. Ben Affleck gets his big scene near the end, as we said, but like for the most part, they are just sort of semi-improvised, big drinking Catholic boys, and there is a niceness to the bond between them. Like as Robin Williams' character will say, like the reason Will hangs out with them over trying to like apply himself and go be a big brilliant academic is. He's been abandoned his whole life, and these people, no matter what you may say about them, are loyal to a fault. Like, they will do absolutely anything for each other. Um, And there is a niceness to that bond between them and, you know, culminating in them giving him a car that is just a piece of shit at the end. It's it's wild to me how different these four crews are. So is is Cole Hauser, like, friends with them from hanging around in Boston, because right. he does feel like the weird odd one out. Because obviously you have to imagine if Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have known each other for years, that presumably, like, Casey just hung out with them. And so, like, he gets into this movie just because he's Ben Affleck's brother. I assume so, yes. And, like, obviously, what like, we've looked at Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's careers. So obviously, the, they're the two biggest movie stars in this thing mm. at this point in time. You've got Casey, who kind of bums around for like 10 years after this movie until eventually he gets the one-two punch of assassination of Jesse James and Gone Baby Gone yeah. and like, is then all of a sudden like the 
the most critically acclaimed actor. I joy, enjoys a few years of being the superior Affleck, and then uh, allegations come out, and now we're all back on board the Ben Affleck thing is, train. The thing is, like, he wins Best Actor in Manchester by the Sea, which he is legitimately great in. Mm. And then all the allegations come out, and it's like that entire award season is like bombarded with all these all this stuff, and it's just kind of like he wins, and everyone's just kind of like nonplussed oh. about it. It's like, <laughs> did we really have to give it to a to an abuser at this point in time? And yeah, he's kind of like gone away at this point. Cole Hauser, on the other hand, who obviously is not a friend of them, but like I weirdly watched all of his big movies this year. <laughs> yeah. Can it, can it top Johns and Pitch Black? No, it can't. Uh. Plus, yeah, so like he plays a white supremacist skinhead in Higher Learning, the, yeah. the John Singleton movie, like a year before this, mm. or two years before this. Then he's obviously the fourth friend in Goodwill Hunting, so like he's eighth on the call sheet and is really the one who leaves the, le- the least impression of this. He then gets to play the, the morphine addicted <laughs> bounty hunter in Pitch Black. Yeah. Uh, and then he finishes off that run of like big famous movies where he's the villain of Too Fast, Too Furious. He is. <laughs> and then uh, after that, he's he's nothing. Like, no, he's in that weird Johnny Depp movie, isn't he? The one where he becomes a computer man. Directed um, by uh, obviously Chris Nolan's longtime cinematographer. But yeah. like yeah. Jarhead Two. Oh my god. <laughs> what a, what a weird run for this person who is just literally hanging around in the background of scenes mm. in this movie, like looking like thing. years older than all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but like, did they not have a fourth friend that they could grab? Like, I don't know. Maybe he is that fourth friend. Maybe they are friends. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that this is a group that like have genuine chemistry as they're like. Yeah, just telling filthy stories and just being delinquents, but it's it's sweet, you know? <laughs> it's, there's something to it. Um, as you will see these people be aggressively from Boston as often as possible in their film careers. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess might as well just do it now, but like, Ben Affleck's big scene comes, he is the one that ultimately convinces Will to actually get the fuck out of Boston, kind of thing. Where like, Lambo doesn't have a hope because he's approaching it from completely the wrong angle. Sean is trying. Mini Driver, who we'll talk about in a minute, is trying. But it's it's Chucky. It is Ben Affleck who's finally like, no, you don't owe it to yourself to go be brilliant. You owe it to people who don't have a choice in the matter, who would do anything to escape. And you are just sitting there. I think he phrases it as like, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket and you won't cash it in, kind of thing. Um, and the big thing of, like, every day I pick you up and I hope you won't answer. And they do establish that throughout the movie. I think we see him pick him up twice, maybe three times before he doesn't answer. Certainly the first scene in the movie, he picks him up and we see it at least once more somewhere in the middle kind of thing. I have to ask the question, because like, I feel like, obviously, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are coming to this from some kind of point of privilege. Like, Matt Damon oh, doesn't yeah. get to go to Harvard without some yeah. financial backing even if they are, like, Boston boys mm. through and through. This feels like it'd be very different if it came from an African-American point of view, because it feels like there are texts <laughs> that examine what it means for someone to be given a gift or, like, have some kind of natural talent and then get them to move on. And yeah. I'm thinking of things like Survivor's Remorse, the TV show about the um, basketball player, but obviously a it lot is of... very often tied up in that, yes. It is often the gifted black athlete from horrible circumstances who is trying to escape that life yes and, and yeah, instead I, I you have a, a blonde haired blue eyed 
clearly wealthy, privileged kid who's cast himself as a, like, poor kid from Southie who, who, like, you know, all he wants to do is drink beers with his friends and he can't help that he's so damn talented. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, because also, like, normally the flip side of these stories is when someone manages to actually get out of this, like, cycle of poverty and whatnot they normally then have to deal with the fact that like all of these people from when they were in this position are going to come looking for some kind of perceived payout or like like oh i'm the person that drove you to basketball practice for five years am i not entitled to to some compensation whereas will just fucking ghosts everyone (laughs) like he's probably never gonna see chucky again I don't. I mean, yeah, I'm just. I'm, I'm just wondering. Like, do people like? Is that even like? Obviously, you don't become rich by being a mathematician. Like, you don't. <laughs> you don't go into the field of mathematics expecting to come away and be a millionaire and own several mansions. But no. Well, I mean, I mean, as Sean puts it, you are bound by nothing. Like, there is no career you cannot master because it's not just that he's smart. He just does seem to have a natural aptitude to picking up anything remotely to do with maths and science like and like he's got he's got an eidetic memory doesn't he yeah like he, i mean he, he's, he's able to quote them verbatim yeah uh, like he, he says he doesn't have one but like he knows page numbers from history books that are allegedly as obscure um and like let, let's go with that so like uh, the big scene is 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 for ben affleck at the end but like probably the most iconic scene in the movie I don't know. There's no, yeah, a, there's a lot of iconic most, scenes, but one hundred percent the most iconic scene of the movie, the one that they parody in. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Smith did get to to direct this movie, and he directs the exact same scene in the middle. He does applesauce, bitch. <laughs> yes, it is the uh, how do you like them apples scene, wherein the 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 group they go to a Harvard bar, and Chucky tries to hit on a couple of ladies, and this absolute dickbag called Clark who, heroically played by Scott William Winters, just, you know, tries to make him look like an idiot because he can tell that he's he doesn't go to Harvard. Like, he, he's saying the biggest words he knows and there is a charm yeah, we to him. We did one history class together and then, like, it's <laughs> obvious that Mini Driver immediately knows and it's just like, either I haven't taken history or, like, no one who goes to Harvard refers to it as a history class. Like, there's some, like, it's History yeah. 101 or... Yeah, like, he just calls modules. it history. Like, it... You, you don't just do history at a college like that. You do, like, a very specific type of history and everything. And, yeah, so, like, he tries to embarrass him, and Will just steps in and just knows every single thing he's read, everything he's going to read, in the order he's going to read it. it he knows the counterpoints to his counterpoints, because, like, oh, no, Wood underestimates blah, 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 blah. And he knows that he's, like, memorised an obscure passage, and he's trying to pass it off as his own opinion. And he rightfully points out that, like, you know, you've dropped all this money when you could have just gone to a public library. So, like, you know, Will just basically just reads and memorises everything he reads. The threat of violence is there immediately. Like, Chuck threatens to beat him up and then uh, Matt and then Will does as well. But, you know, the, 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 the dumb kids get their big embarrassing moment over the, the, the clever elitist guy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great scene. It's, it's a little bit it, it's very much like, I don't want to call it a power fantasy, but, you know, it's clearly written from a position of, like, God, wouldn't it be great if you could just do this to one of these dickheads kind of thing? Yeah, what if you could... I mean, again, it's, it's the ultimate kind of, like, debate me bro yeah. kind of thing, where it's like, what if you could go into an argument with the perfect counter-argument already in place? Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say, but, like, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon have been going out drinking and getting into intellectual debate <laughs> Harvard people, because I'm pretty sure, like, 
having gone to university, like even even if you are smart, that's not how you're dealing with people. Is you're not trying to one up them in intellectual debate whilst you're getting drunk. Like it's fun because of how like unlikely it is that it could happen. Yeah, it's like it's exaggerated. It's heightened. It's 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 all of those things. But there is just something. I mean, it's appealing to the part of me that likes when every Aaron Sorkin character is just, like, effortlessly a genius, and it's like, well, this is completely unrealistic, but I'm having a nice time. Um, so it appeals to that part of me. Yeah, and it's and again, it's it's charismatic actors being getting the chance to be charismatic, Yeah, and you get the ultimate stinger to the scene of the, like, how do you like them apples when he shows fuck <laughs> the, the number? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's the ultimate kind of like feel good moment in this kind of movie where everyone gets to have a chance and get like some good singers off. Like, it, not saying that it's as bad as like Marvel movies are nowadays in terms of like everyone's got to be quippy, but like mm. it's definitely in that kind of like you're going to perfectly shut down someone in a debate mm. with one line. And that, of course leads him to meeting Skylar, played by Minnie Driver, who is arguably as big of an influence, potentially a bigger influence than Sean is. Sean just helps him get in order how he feels about Skylar. Skylar is the person that actually drives him to open up more to Sean and to make big changes in his life. And Minnie Driver, I feel, is more famous for being called Minnie Driver, which is a ridiculous fucking name, than she is as an actor, but... Well, so she's at this point she's coming off Goldeneye, Big Night, and Gross Point Blank. So like nothing. Goldeneye's the biggest of those three, I think. I honestly, I've seen Goldeneye a bunch of times. I do not remember who she is in Goldeneye. <laughs> um, I assume someone he sleeps with. But yeah, I mean, she's got a hell of a lot of credits to her name. Yeah, but the thing is, she's she's one of those kind of like very much '90s people where she is. This is kind of. I don't want to say it's the peak of her career, but it definitely feels like this is kind of where she doesn't really get lead roles no. that work for her after this. Like she, she has a couple of like voice acting roles in Princess Mononoke, Tarzan, and South Park within the same year, yeah. and then after that, she kind of like is forced into TV. I don't know if she's like just got like a lot of friends in the right places, but she does seem to just keep popping up over the years, and like she'll pop up in like a British comedy as like. Is that Minnie Driver? And she's like a rand. She's got like a two-minute scene. It's like she's great in it. It's just like, what's Minnie Driver doing here? Is this your reference to Star Starstruck? She's in Starstruck, but then she's also in um, what's that? I I give it a year. That movie that's from twenty thirteen. That's not even that recent. But God, time exists, doesn't it? The um, the Rose Byrne Rafe Spall rom com that's actually quite good. Um, she shows up and she's like just at the wedding and and is just being a drunk British woman at a wedding. Um, I've got a lot of time for, for her because it feels like she's someone who is really charismatic and it, I just gets fucked by mm. how sexist Hollywood is where like she's great in the 90s in yeah. like all these different movies and then ultimately kind of like has she just been cast as too old like I, I, I just I don't know and then ultimately doesn't really get anything to do until she ends up being the lead on the riches and then even after that she just kind of like bums around TV for a little while yeah. until she gets to I mean like she's so good in speechless yeah. in the lead role on that but again it's like what roles do we have for women who are actually like old enough to be parents and it's like mm -hmm. well no one's making these movies where you aren't super hot like yeah you look at you look at marissa tomei in the spider-man movies where it's like you the joker she's so phenomenally hot yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like you can't just be and not to say that mini driver isn't attractive but it's a shame that like she doesn't 
she can't just be they're not making these roles and if they do they're not going to cast them or they're only going to exist on television really yeah yeah, yeah. like some sort of prestige drama about you know women trapped in difficult marriages with children and all these things she's fantastic here though like yeah so much offbeat energy that kind of constantly trolling unafraid to be not graceful like the fantastic scene where she is like one-upping them on the joke that they're telling each other where like they they are doing like fairly risque jokes but like definitely nothing that like would make your mother blush and then she comes along and does like semen prop comedy yes i mean chucky's story is about my uncle got so drunk he stole a policeman's car hers is like an, an old irish couple like the woman gives the man a blowjob and then she asks for a kiss and she like dribbles beer down herself afterwards and stuff um to illustrate it and yeah like you know their first kiss they're both eating food and like they just have this like really bad kiss with food in their mouths that just makes them laugh and you know she's doing the ugly laugh when when they're on the date and everything and it's it's all just this sort of charming you know, there's this almost trope of like disaster, hot mess, disaster women who are like charming in a weird way. They're not trying to say that, but she does perfectly fit in with what Sean's saying about like the stuff I remember about my wife is, you know, she would fart so loud she'd wake herself up and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I'm not trying to one to one it, but this is a woman who, while she is like very intelligent and charming and all of this, she does also have. I don't know how to phrase it, but, you know, like, there, there is something about her that is, like, imperfect that appeals to Will um, and completely captures his his attention and everything. And, like, she she can keep up with him on a sort of, like, banter level, which, and I guess that is the ultimate thing that appeals, is that, like, he is the only smart person he knows, basically. And even the smart people he is forced to hang out with throughout the plot of the movie, he's smarter than all of them, too, and it bores him. And I feel, and, you know, he talks about how he's been laid and all of that stuff, and Sean calls him on it of, like, I bet you've never bothered to actually try and love anyone. And and he even reveals, like, what if I get to know her properly and I find out she's really stupid and I hate her, basically. <laughs> and I think it's the fact that she can, like, give as good as she gets and, like, is really quick-witted that, like... I feel that is what is appealing to him. Yeah, because that's it, that's the weird thing, and obviously it's that the whole thing about his relationships, like the reason why he doesn't, he isn't sick of like his three friends, is because like they're there for him, yeah, unquestionably, and that's what is so hard about him like developing these new relationships. Mm-hmm. But like, it's very obvious that like being on a different intellectual level isn't as important to him as loyalty and just general chemistry. Like yeah. if, if he if he was someone who got mad at people for being less intelligent than him, then he would be a complete loner, and he yeah, always yeah, yeah. that. Well, his big thing is that like he feels that she is just she's just in it for like he's a bit of rough, if that's an expression mm. that people understand in America. Like she like he's she's slumming it with a poor kid out of morbid curiosity, and then she's going to go back to like some trust fund kid who goes on ski holiday. You know, the guy from the bar, basically, and he's basically trying to get out before she betrays him, as it were. And he, he cannot put his trust in another person because of what we will close with talking about, which is the main crux of the movie. But yeah, and and 
she's just so charming and like you know she doesn't get all that many scenes like she sort of goes away and comes back quite a lot and and like stuff like they're in bed and she's like oh i'm gonna be in the nba i i love wearing shorts i'm tall hook hook dunk dunk well she's just a complete she's like a bit of a dork but also super intelligent and you know it does all work out sort of well we don't know and that's sort of i'm a fan sometimes of that like it's not about whether they end up together, it's that he actually bothered to put himself out there as he drives across the country to go be with her in California. And we don't need to know if it worked out or not, but the, the point was to get him out of neutral, and that is thanks to Sean, and let's finally talk about Robin Williams and Will in therapy in general, because that is the crux of the movie. Um, it's probably the stuff we should have talked about before anything else, but yeah, a powerhouse. Save, save, save the best for last. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. This is... It, it's Robin Williams' final Oscar nomination. Uh, before this movie, uh, he is nominated for Best Actor for Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Book Society, and The Fisher King. So he's got three nominations to his name. Kind of every two years he gets one. He takes six years off in between those two and then gets his, his win and his final nomination yep. for, for Good Bull Hunting. I, I don't think he really tries again after this. Like He's obviously... He is less less inert towards doing these kind of movies like it feels like one hour photo could have got him a nomination but it's definitely just a bit too too dark same with insomnia like <laughs> i feel like insomnia like if it had come out during the actual like run of christopher nolan being the biggest name in hollywood yeah probably does get him a nomination but probably. coming out in 2002 it, it doesn't it doesn't really hit the needle and then everything else is like He's in RV and Man of the Year and does all the voices in Happy Feet and like the museum and like ultimately before his his tragic suicide he's just kind of like I, I feel like again it's that thing where like I don't know what he wants to do or they're not making the movies that you can use Robin Williams in well it's it's a very similar trajectory to a Jim Carrey where like yeah. these big personality driven comedy movies with actors who have enough darkness inside them to be compelling dramatic actors just yeah. stop being a priority for Hollywood yeah. and end up with like in like the last year of his life he's a series regular on the on the crazy ones with Sir Michelle Geller. yeah and didn't he like make a movie about suicide or he played someone his, who commits suicide like... his son commits suicide in um, World's Greatest Dad uh, I believe is Bobcat Goldthwait finds uh, oh, yeah, Bobcat yeah, yeah. Goldthwait movie where he finds his son has like died of autoerotic asphyxiation yeah, yeah, yeah. and like covers it up for him right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen it even and <laughs> but, but just the once you know just really tragic that that kind of role was the kind of thing he was doing not long before he killed himself and then yeah, like we lost a hell of a talent here. Like one of the warmest people in a very shitty industry. Um, I mean, like it's it's weird because like I, the last few things I was seeing him in regularly were like I remember he's obviously named his daughter Zelda after the <laughs> Zelda series. Yeah, and they were doing the run of like the the twenty fifth anniversary Zelda adverts where the two of them yeah. playing Skyward Sword and and all those release games. It was like. Uh, and then I think the, like he was showing up in Louie towards the end, and it was just a nice reminder. It's like, oh, it's Robin Williams. Like, remember how great Robin Williams was when like he got to let him just be a charismatic force and things. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, I remember I was working the day that we found out he killed himself, and it was just Jesus Christ, like just a real shame. And like he, you can tell in this movie that there is that inside him. Like that first 
first big scene with him and Will, where we've had the build-up in terms of we know that Will is driving away all of these therapists. Like, he is completely disinterested in taking therapy and is, like, making them or accusing them of being gay and wanting to have sex with him and, like, pretending that he was hypnotised when he wasn't really. And, like, all these all these different things are out these people away. And this is the first time that you see a therapy scene go out in full. And all it is is Will walking around the room needling this man trying to find what buttons to press mm-hmm. to make him, like, snap. And it's like, oh, you're, you're reading shit books. Like, what on earth do you think you're doing? And, like, and then eventually he settles on, like, oh, this picture that you painted, how shit is that? I bet your wife hates it. Yeah. And, he, f- he finds that one thing and, like, the smirk on his face when he knows he's gotten that reaction, finally. And Sean is doing so well until then because he sort of just match. He won't be thrown off. He matches his energy... Like every time he says a ridiculous non sequitur, he just hits him back with a with a question that Will will never answer. He won't talk about himself, so he's just asking questions and he won't answer any of them. Yeah, and it, it's just, it's kind of a battle of wills and stubbornness and and sort of of not falling into the obvious traps. And then yeah, he gets him on that picture, and it's like he's trying to like diagnose him as like depressed because of the quality of the picture and like. Well, he's trying to get him on, like, oh, the picture's rubbish, you're you're terrible. And then he switches tack to, like, oh, I think it's actually trying to say how depressed you are. And then, yeah, he just stumbles onto the wife thing, and, uh, Sean. <laughs> the thing is, he doesn't, he doesn't realise what the wife thing is, really. Like, I, does he, does he, he doesn't actually find out she's dead until he, no. like, starts choking him, does he? Uh, no, no. No, like, that's, that's the thing where it's, like... Will thinks it's just, like, a funny little thing, and he thinks he's found some, like, marital tension, maybe they're going to get divorced, ha, 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 look how funny this is. Yeah. And, obviously, we at this point know that, like, Sean's wife is dead, and yeah. Robin Williams, like, just it, it's just the shift where, like, he goes from being the Robin Williams that we know to, like, the just the darkness behind his eyes, and it's just, like, if you ever speak about my wife in this room again, I will... I'll fucking end you, you got that, chief. Yeah, and it's like... It is suddenly like, you know, Will is this violent young man who's afraid of no one. And then very suddenly it's apparent. Robin Williams, while he seems like a meek, funny little man, this is a grown-ass man and this is a, like, teenage boy. And it's, like, very apparent that, like, this would not go well for Will if he pushed it. And we can never forget that one of the reasons that Lambeau went to him and one of the selling points is, you're both from Southie, kind of thing. So it's like... I'm not saying that, like, Sean used to do exactly what Will does, but it's like, you know, he's met people like him, certainly, so he will not be intimidated by his, like, <laughs> young ruffianness kind of thing. But, you know, he does get to him, and he does lose his cool, and, like, you know, if, if a therapist did this, they would be fired and everything, but he collects his thoughts, and they have a little talk by a lake or by a river, and he just completely destroys him by being like, look, you're smart as shit, but you have done nothing. You have never left this town. You don't know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never woken up next to a woman who you're completely in love with. You don't know shit. All you are is what you've read in books, kind of thing. And like that is the scene that, you know, wins him the Oscar, I would assume. It is sort of the calling card scene for him from the movie. And and Matt Damon is broadly just silent in that scene. <laughs> and Will is just sort of staring at the floor and like, Mm, you've got I mean, yeah, there's, me there. even, there's, there's even the shot, I think, which is like it's zooming in 
or zooming out from Rob Williams' face, and you don't see Matt Damon until like the camera's zoomed out sufficiently, and you only see the corner of his nose, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, like this is Rob Williams' scenes just completely destroyed. I'm actually intrigued now to see if I can find like the 1997 Oscars and see what the clip was that they played. I think it is this one. I I, I don't. I certainly have a vivid memory of like someone queuing up a moment from Goodwill Hunting and then it was this and it was I don't know if it was the Oscar announcement or like a piece on Robin Williams' life or something, but like I have to imagine this is the one like monologues tend to win Oscars. Yeah, they did they didn't <laughs> play the clip. There is the, the the still of him is the still of him sat by the lake. So yeah. yeah, like they were definitely like if they'd done a clip package that evening, I have to imagine it was this scene that, that wins him the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, explaining about his wife and you know visiting hours don't apply to you i don't regret this i don't regret that and you know from there they go to like they just sit silently in the office and he won't talk first and i think they do three full sessions or two and a half sessions where they just don't speak and then finally like it's playing out in tandem with will meeting skylar and and things changing with her is when he finally starts actually talking to him and he tells the he tells the blowjob joke on on the plane and everything, and it's very cute that Sean later is seen delivering the punchline in a bar to someone else. Um, and they finally, you know, they start talking and they talk about the the World Series and and you know they they're getting so animated together and and like the big line I had to go see about a girl and like you know you know just getting him so hype and then it was like oh my god did you run the field like no I wasn't there because I was going to talk to my future wife kind of thing and the that they're bonding over that and he's like oh your friends let you do this as he like casts his mind to his own friends and like what it would be like if he were in that situation and yeah it's just really cute seeing them actually slowly become friends kind of thing even if there you know there continues to be that tension throughout where people are saying the wrong things and you know he even says to him like do you ever wonder what it'd be like if you hadn't met your wife and he and he he does make very sure to clarify, like, oh, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way because I realise I was hella disrespectful before. But yeah, like, and and we've sort of alluded to the moments already, you know, like the talking about the farting in bed and the baseball and all of that stuff. And there there are those digs that come in of like he basically accuses him of like that's a great philosophy, Will. Then you can go through life without ever knowing anyone. And Will fires it back at him that like you know. Obviously, it's very sad your wife has died, but you've basically stayed stuck in place since that moment. And by the end of the movie, Sean does decide he's going to go traveling a bit and, and maybe try and live another life kind of thing. So it's yeah, the, it's I'm, the... I'm going to go around and then eventually I'll be back within a year to attend the, the whatever the 25th anniversary of us graduating from, from mm. university. As I said, like there, there are still those tensions where like, he calls him on the fact that like they they argue about the jobs. Like like Lambo sets up a series of job interviews and like he sends Chucky to one and Ben Affleck is in this like ill fitting suit, saying every long word he knows, asking for money and stuff like that. And he he tells a person at the NSA that like if he cracks a certain code he could fuck over poor people, essentially. So like, you know, right on. For for some people who I feel in more recent years have been revealed to not have some great politics. It's actually quite a nice little thing to say. Refreshing to have people, from, actors from Boston, come out against these agencies. Well, Jim from The Office is like, I fucking love the CIA. But yeah, he's like, um, 
they're talking about it and he's like you know what's wrong with with doing manual labor he's like there's nothing wrong with doing manual labor well however you wanted to be a janitor but you chose mit you could have mopped the floors anywhere and you're talking about honor and stuff but you are solving problems in private and lying that you didn't do it so i think you're actually full of shit will and i think you actually do want things you're just scared and he's genuinely hurt when Sean kicks him out early kind of thing. Um, because they are starting to bond and it's like, oh wait, no, no, don't be angry at me. No one no one can betray me kind of thing. There's so many kind of like good levels to all of these therapy scenes. And obviously mm. like the, the one that always sticks in my mind is when they have the kind of the flashback to the, the child abuse that... that mm. Will suffered, and it's like the two shots are the one of him, his dad walking up the stairs, and then the second one where it's like the kaleidoscope version. It's like just this idea that like his his view is distorted of the world because of what his dad did to him and stuff like that, and that's what's causing him to to have the fight where he breaks up with with Skylar because he refuses to tell her that he loves her, yeah. and and all these different things. Like he will push away anyone who's trying to help him because of this great trauma in his past. Like, obviously, it's it's trite and obvious, but I do think that, like, in that moment, Gus Van Sant manages to find an interesting way to frame what has gone on in the past. The movie knows when to drop in the darkness around the edges whilst also having these actors be charismatic and funny. Like, because obviously there's so much tension going on in terms of the job, job interview scenes around the fact that, like, Sean and Lambeau are having arguments about whether or not will is ready for them the scene when when chucky is at mcneil and basically manages to grift the interviewers into giving him money as like a down payment in him accepting the job he's yeah. on an 84 grand a year salary he wants 200 dollars <laughs> as a retainer and they don't even have cash on them because they're so rich they don't carry cash and, and again yeah and then the movie kind of like then has to find the way to go to the scenes of like Sean and Lambeau arguing about whether or not they need to dump Will back in prison because he's late for late for this meeting. And obviously, like he's gone elsewhere in this particular scene, but it, it's a really deft kind of like juggling of the two tones of this movie. It's funny because like you know he's receiving his therapy, but really, as I said, it's what's going on with Chuck, it's what's going on with Skylar that is pushing him forward in the therapy. And Sean is just like more receptive and better at counselling him through it. But they never until that final one. They never really sit down and talk about Will's problems. They just sort of shoot the shit a bit and connect and swap stories and like talk about Sean's grief and stuff. And it's it's that final scene where where Sean has the file from Will's like foster home abuse and and getting beaten up by you know his foster father and you know that that is the trauma behind it all is that like he was abandoned by his parent or orphaned or I actually don't know but you know like they phrase it as very like. The people that were supposed to be there for him were not, and therefore he's been unable to form any kind of bond with anyone, and he values loyalty over everything, and he won't put himself out there, and just hits him with the it's not your fault, a scene that is like so simple, so powerful, so parodiable, and where he just tells him over and over again it's not your fault, and because Will is so smart, he's like, oh yeah, of course I know, and he's like, no, 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 you actually listen to what I'm saying, and when he finally engages with him heroic crying from Matt Damon as he just completely balls um, into Robin Williams' arms and then he goes to see about a girl instead of taking the big job that he accepted um, I do think that's like my biggest bugbear at the end of the movie 
is that like he probably shouldn't get to have another chance with Skylar, really, should he? <laughs> no, not not that. It's more to do with the therapy side of it, where okay. it's like he has the final thing with with Sean and reveals like the, what the reason that's powering his trauma, and the movie's kind of like, well done, you've won therapy, you've encountered <laughs> like the thing that is your great trauma in your past and discussed it openly. You are now fixed, and it's like no, that's like step one. I know. Like you've gone through all of these things, and like you finally. <laughs> hit on the actual thing that's causing you issues. It does yeah, seem a very therapy as written by someone who's never been to therapy view of therapy. Like where no, it's like No, this this is how therapy works. You spend nine <laughs> sessions not discussing your problems, one session discussing your problems and then you're done. Yeah. Like you don't have one big epiphany that changes everything. It's a constant thing that like some people do stop having therapy. They have some they they feel they have gotten everything they can out of it and they stop, but I think most people, as long as they can afford it, continue to have therapy because it's just a thing you should do. But it is very much, ah, we had the breakthrough, you're fixed, off you go to have a full and complete life. (laughs) I I mean, you know, it is, he is like, here's my number, if you ever want to talk, call me, and like, maybe they are pen pals forevermore, and... Maybe we'll find a new therapist. Who, yeah. who and knows? then Will moves out to LA and he starts a tech startup uh, <laughs> and is now actually um, Elon Musk. Just the worst person alive, maybe. Yeah, I mean, look, it is very, I don't want to call it fake deep, but there is a sort of like overly simplistic, look how fucking smart we are, look how fucking poignant this is element to it that I wouldn't have recognised. At eighteen and early twenties, that I do recognise now. So like, I'm, I'm less over the top with my praise for it. But, but... but we can't deny the kind of the formative pieces of media yeah. that we had whilst growing up. And I think exactly, like it's, yeah. it's important to recognise that like this is formative in terms of like how you yeah. view and understand what you enjoy in movies, even if you've kind of like aged out of it being like your favourite thing in the world. Yeah, I am. I am still driven more towards stuff that is script driven and acting driven as we said at the top like i'm not all that interested in fancy director work or even like i don't even have a favorite director but like i am drawn to these big flashy performances and this over the top clever unquote quote unquote writing and just yeah this is probably almost solely responsible for all of that so funnily this actually got on the list very late and I was I I said to you, oh by the way, this is probably one of my five favourite films. You were like, oh, okay. Well then we will put it on there. <laughs> Buy Men in Black. <laughs> so yeah, that's how it got on here. Still great. Okay, I, I'm not gonna deny that like it, it this is an easy watch, probably one of the easiest watches that we've had yeah. in this kind of like back half. Like not to say that it, it's not all been like easy watches to be honest, but like it is definitely like it, it goes down very easily yeah. um it, it's one it, thing one thing that i couldn't find the time to kind of like just bring up is the fact that like I, seeing that this movie was almost offered to michael mann <laughs> blew my mind I, I cannot imagine what the michael mann version of this movie is it's the same but really loud gunshots <laughs> just constantly speaking of what is and is not on the list Next week, as we head into 1998, our one and only stop in 1998, so tip in the hat to the final three movies there, but we chose as the greatest movie of 1998, The Truman Show, which I am very much looking forward to watching again and discussing with you, Benjamin, and you, our audience, next week. I say discussing with our audience, like, 
we record ahead of time. We get very little feedback on this thing. We're basically just recording conversations we're having privately, and some of you are listening. But we appreciate those of you that are. And until we talk about The Truman Show, we do have one question that lingers, and it is, as always, Benjamin, will there be movies? Uh, yes, but they're definitely going to feature less apples. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> I didn't know And I did it